0: I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly rewarding career as a writer. Let me tell you something about my childhood. When I was a kid, I was pretty sure that I was the most deprived child in the world because my parents never let me watch enough TV. Now, what's funny about this is when I started putting together a list for today's episode of all the science fiction TV shows and movies I watched growing up, I realized I watched a hell of a lot of TV. I don't know why I felt so deprived, but apparently my childhood perception was a bit off because I watched a lot of stuff. This has been kind of put into perspective for me by something I included in my book, the biography of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, entitled The Close Encounters Man, How One Man Made the World Believe in UFOs. In my book, I quoted a film historian named Patrick Lucanio, who wrote a book called Them or Us, in which he described the amazing growth of the science fiction genre in film during the 1950s and 1960s. Here's what he wrote. The proliferation of science fiction films is one of the most interesting developments in post-World War II film history. An estimated 500 film features and shorts made between 1948 and 1962 can be indexed under the broad heading of science fiction. One might argue convincingly that never in the history of motion pictures has any other genre developed and multiplied so rapidly in so brief a period. Well, I think Mr. Locanio was correct, and I think that I have watched almost all of those films he's talking about. So let's go to my list of things that I used to watch constantly as a child. This will give you some idea where I'm coming from and where I'm going. First, TV. Johnny Quest. Now, I was surprised when I did a little research to find that Johnny Quest was originally aired on primetime TV because it's an animated series. And not only is it an animated series, it's a dramatic series animated series. It's a, it's a science fiction thriller animated TV series. Johnny Quest lived the ideal boy's life. He was a kid of maybe 15 or so. He never went to school, never had to do chores, never had a bedtime, at least as far as I could tell. What he did was jet around the world with his dad, Dr. Benton Quest, who was a scientist, solving scientific mysteries. Along for the ride were Johnny's best friend Haji, a young Indian boy who I guess was Johnny's adopted brother, and Ray Spannon, who was Dr. Quest's kind of sidekick and bodyguard, I guess. Never really quite figured out how Ray's fit into things. But the show was super cool. It had all sorts of monsters and science fiction elements, ray guns like crazy. It was just a ridiculously fun show for me as a kid. Let me just read you some of the episode titles from Johnny Quest, and you'll get the idea. They had episodes called Monster in the Monastery, Terror Island, Attack of the Tree People, The Werewolf of the Timberland, and Temple of Gloom. I'm telling you, this is a great show. If you can find it, watch it. After Johnny Quest comes another animated TV show, Space Ghost. You may only know him as a talk show host from his popular cartoon channel show Space Ghost Coast to Coast. But the ghost started out as a science fiction hero. He was uh, this guy who just flew around space defeating bad guys and saving the universe. And he had two teenage kid sidekicks, Jan and Jace. And they all wore little masks that only covered just their eyes, not the rest of their face. So I never really understood what the point was. After Space Ghost, we have The Outer Limits. I talked a little bit about The Outer Limits in the first episode of the show. Now I'm going to talk about it in a little more detail. Outer Limits was a phenomenal TV show. It was a groundbreaker. It was a black and white anthology show. So every episode, something different, new cast, new story, new universe, everything changed from week to week. The writers had one rule. The bear, that's what they called the monster in the episode, the bear had to appear by the 30-minute mark. Sometimes they would actually show a sneak peek of the bear in the show's uh, uh, teaser before the opening credits. But for the most part, you never saw the monster until about halfway through the show. And the monsters were amazing. In the last episode, I talked about the galaxy being, which was a glowing white humanoid creature that had little black circles for eyes and no other facial features. But there were other monsters that were equally terrifying. There was the It Crawled Out of the Woodwork monster, which was this huge malevolent energy cloud. There was the episode Cry of Silence with the killer tumbleweeds. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's a lot scarier than it sounds, believe me. There's the brilliant show about a surveillance state called Obit, in which these super surveillance machines are appearing in military bases around the country and sapping everyone of their morale because nobody has any secrets anymore. And it turns out the Obit machines came from these evil aliens who want to destroy our morale before they attack. And the aliens just happen to have one eye and they were very cool looking. best of all were the Xanti misfits. Now the Xanti were an alien race that contacted the Earth and basically made us an offer we can't refuse. They basically said, "We're running out of room for all our prisoners, so we want to send them to a prison camp on Earth and make them your problem. And if you do that for us, we won't attack you maybe." So the Earth is forced to accept these Xanties, the Xanti misfits. And when the spaceship finally arrives and the Xanties pull a prison break, we find out what they really look like. They're foot-long ants with human faces. Sounds silly, but those things are terrifying. The thing about The Outer Limits is, when I saw it as a kid, I just thought, these are cool monster stories. These are cool, scary monster stories. And you know, back then in the mid-60s, after a show went off the air, after only like a season and a half, not even two full seasons, when it's showing off the air, it just kind of disappeared. We didn't really have that many reruns. There was obviously no home video. So it took years before I was able to screen The Outer Limits again, and when it started showing up late night on reruns on one of the independent TV stations. And what I realized when I watched The Outer Limits as an older person, I realized that in most of the episodes, the monsters, the aliens, were far more humane than the humans. The humans usually turned out to be the really rotten characters in the show, and the aliens had to teach them a lesson and show them what was right. That was a real eye-opener for me as a science fiction fan and as a writer. As a writer, it was profound because it was this very important lesson in how you can be telling multiple stories at the same time within the same narrative framework. That was a big lesson for me. So Outer Limits was pretty huge. Now, it seems like there was kind of a drought of science fiction after Outer Limits, but actually there were a few choice shows. There was Lost in Space, which is familiar to a lot of people. Lost in Space started out fairly strong. It was a play on the Swiss family Robinson, except it was about the space family Robinson, who got shipwrecked on an alien planet after they lost track of where they were going. And they encountered all sorts of weird space creatures and monsters. They were never anywhere near as scary as the Outer Limits monsters. The Lost in Space monsters were more or less, they were pretty campy, actually, when you get right down to it. And after a year or two, Lost in Space really lost its way because it just became all about the obnoxious stowaway, Dr. Smith, and the little kid, Will Robinson, and the robot And the robot was cool, but the robot and Dr. Smith and Will, they just were not enough to carry the show, and it went into a steep decline once they took over. The producer, Irwin Allen, who had kind of specialized in pretty schlocky material, had a couple other science fiction series in the 60s, and of course I watched those too. They were Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. That lasted a season or two, I think. And then there were Land of the Giants self-explanatory, and Time Tunnel, also self-explanatory. Those shows only lasted a season or so each. They had their moments, but they weren't really very good. But because they were all Irwin Allen productions, you could count on monster makeup showing up in all four shows. If it was good enough to be in Lost in Space, then it was good enough to be a monster in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and the Time Tunnel and The Land of the Giants. One of the highlights of 1960s TV science fiction was a show called The Invaders. And not just The Invaders, it was The Invaders in Color. It told the story of an architect, architect David Vincent, who got hopelessly lost while driving home late at night. And while he was trying to figure out how to get back on the main highway, he saw a UFO land and he saw people get out of the UFO So David Vincent became the only person on Earth who knew that we were being visited and invaded by aliens. And he was the only one who could tell an invader from a human being. Because there was one weird little quirk that always gave them away. And this we always loved this as kids, my brothers and I. We just loved the fact that the invaders could be spotted because they couldn't bend their pinkies. So if you saw an invader pick up like a cup of tea and his or her pinky was sticking out, it wasn't because they were being dainty. It was because they were aliens. Okay? They were aliens. Now, we never knew exactly who the aliens were, to the best of my memory. We never knew what planet they came from. We didn't know what they were called. We didn't really know what they wanted, except, well, they wanted to colonize the Earth, I guess. But we knew that they weren't humanoid because every 12 hours or so, there was some time limit. The aliens had to regenerate. They had to stand in these glass tubes and have their humanoid bodies regenerated so that they they could continue to pass themselves off as humans. And if they didn't get regenerated or if they got shot, they would instantly burn up. They would just turn bright red and burn up. And I think sometimes they would leave little dark smudge marks on the ground where they burned up. But there was never anything left of the aliens that David Vincent could use as proof that we were being invaded. So he was a very lonely guy. That was a great show. Had a great theme music, too. There was the biggie, Star Trek. It only ran for three seasons. It went from 1966 to about 1969. So when it premiered, I was six years old. And I knew enough at six years old. I knew enough to know that Star Trek was... Something special. It was something different. In fact, I remember that it aired on NBC on Thursday nights from 6.30 to 7.30, and my bedtime on a school night was 7. So I can remember pleading with my parents to let me stay up to 7.30 on Thursday nights so I could watch the new Star Trek. And I think it must have worked at least part of the time, because I, I know I watched a lot of the episodes during its first run. And if you know anything about Star Trek, you just know it's classic science fiction. It rewrote the book on on. The entire science fiction genre, a diverse crew of different races and different species all working together on one spaceship. Their mission was exploration. It wasn't anything military. There was violence, of course, when the aliens got violent, but our people, our Federation heroes... They were on a mission of exploration, and it just captured so many people's imaginations. Not enough, though, because it was dying in the ratings by the second year. And that wasn't really the show's fault. It was really neglected by NBC. It wasn't really given much of a chance. And it looked like it was going to be canceled after the second series, after the second season. But what happened was kind of miraculous. By the end of two seasons, Star Trek had solidified a pretty significant fan base. And some of those fans got to organizing. And this is, you know, this is 1968. They're just using the U.S. Postal Service and telephones. And they start organizing. And they launch a letter-writing campaign to NBC demanding that NBC prolong the show for a third season. And... The response was amazing. NBC renewed the show for a third season. Unfortunately, much of the original creative team had left by this point, so they brought in new producers, new writers. The show changed significantly at that point, but it was still Star Trek, and it was good. It was just good to have another 26 or so episodes of Star Trek coming at you, even if the third season had such dopey episodes as Spock's Brain, which is generally considered the worst. It was still a great show, and as you may know, a lot of people working in the U.S. space program for the last 30-40 years are doing so because they were inspired by watching Star Trek. Shortly after Star Trek was cancelled in 1969, a new British science fiction show arrived called simply UFO. And this may be where my specific fixation on UFOs came from. The show was, as the title makes clear, it was about one thing and one thing only. It was a super secret military operation in England that did nothing but fend off attacking UFOs. And they had all sorts of high-tech goodies they used in order to battle the UFOs and the aliens. The show was super fun. It was also kind of nonsensical. We never knew who the aliens were. We never knew who they, what they were called, just like in The Invaders. We didn't know what planet they were from. We didn't know what their objective was. We just know that they kept sending flying saucers one or two or three at a time to Earth in order to do something that we were never really sure of, except we knew it was bad. Now, UFO is interesting. It had an American star, Ed Bishop. Everyone else in the cast was British. It was shown in syndication in the United States, so it wasn't picked up by any one of the three major commercial networks. So it was sold market to market. And in Milwaukee, where I grew up, it was shown on Channel 18 on Saturday evenings from 6 to 7. And just like the problem I had with trying to stay up to watch Star Trek past my bedtime on Thursday nights, I had a very similar problem with UFO. It aired at 6 to 7, and we ate dinner on Saturday nights at 6 sharp no ifs ands or buts so for me to just skip dinner and stay downstairs watching ufo i mean it was it was it was desperation it was desperation tactics but what could i do it was the only way i could see this show was to just postpone dinner and eat it later and risk being you know yelled at or disciplined or whatever by my parents i'm not even sure how they would have disciplined me for that But I had to do it. I had to stay up. I had to skip dinner. I had to do whatever I had to do to to watch science fiction on TV. And then there were the movies. The movies would show up on Saturday afternoons. They'd show up on Saturday nights. That was basically science fiction and monster movie day. Saturdays. All day Saturday. Number one on my list is The Day the Earth Stood Still with the Evil... Well, he wasn't really evil. He seemed evil, the evil robot Gort. I guess he was evil depending on your point of view. If he was about to incinerate your planet, then he was evil. Otherwise, he was actually part of a cosmic police force. The creature from the Black Lagoon was another good one. Not really science fiction, I guess. The creature was just an evolutionary dead end, a underwater humanoid creature, a gill man. That was all but extinct, but there was still one living in the Black Lagoon. And the movie was all about these American scientists trying to recover the creature and bring it back to the United States to study it. And there's a very memorable scene where the actress, the star uh, Julia Adams, is swimming in the Black Lagoon in a white one-piece swimming suit. And the creature is swimming along behind her, upside down, mimicking her swim strokes, looking up at her, and of course she's looking down but doesn't see him. The War of the Worlds, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, that was also a childhood favorite. This one was in Living Color, it was a beautiful movie. The Martian spaceships were so weird because they weren't flying saucers, they weren't orbs, they came to Earth in metal containers, and when they came out of the metal containers, they looked like giant bronze bats, and they shot death rays, and they were just invincible and the martians themselves were so creepy because they weren't humanoid at all they were like little mushrooms they were like weird little mushrooms with really long arms with suction cups at the ends of their fingertips and instead of two eyes like we have they had one big eye in the middle of their i guess it was their face one big eye that was split up into red green and blue lenses earth versus the flying saucers pretty self-explanatory Not much to say there, except that, of course, the Earth wins. But there is one funny scene that I still marvel at. The aliens in Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, of course, like any self-respecting alien species, has death rays and laser beams, which they use to, you know, just wreak havoc all over the Earth, especially in Washington, D.C., where this takes place. But there's one scene in particular where the aliens have kidnapped a U.S. Army general. They have completely sucked his brain dry of all his knowledge. And when he's done, and basically he's been, the general has been lobotomized, the aliens don't zap him with a ray gun. They dump him out of an open door of their flying saucer from a great height down into a raging forest fire. I always thought that was a particularly cruel way of killing an army general. Invasion of the body snatchers was also a good one. There are no monsters in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. There are just seed pods that slowly turn into human duplicates as we sleep. Doesn't seem like there'd be anything scary about that, but believe me, it's a very, very chilling movie. It's so chilling, it's been remade at least three times that I know of. This Island Earth was another butte. This was another big studio production. It was full color, huge production values, about aliens that are involved in an interstellar war And they need new brain power to help save their race. So they come to Earth because apparently they think our scientists are smarter than their scientists. So they kidnap scientists and take them back to their world to try to win the war. And unfortunately, it's too little too late. I just have a funny, weird memory of this movie the first time I saw it on TV as a kid. And the title came up, This Island Earth. And I don't know how old I would have been, but I was so young that I had never seen the word island before. So I went around calling it This Is Land Earth until somebody corrected me. Probably one of my brothers or sisters. I Married a Monster from Outer Space. If you've never seen it, you've got to see it. The aliens are great. The story is great. The heroine, the one woman who finds out that her husband is actually an alien, she's great. Everything about that movie is top-notch. I mentioned in the last episode that I've always loved Godzilla movies. Again, don't know why. I think it's just the Japanese science fiction movies all follow this sort of dream logic that I find very appealing. and, And effective in some way that I can't really describe. As you may know, there have been, at this point, dozens and dozens of Godzilla movies made. Of course, my favorites are the early ones, when Godzilla's still a bad guy. The later movies, when Godzilla becomes a good guy and has to defend Earth from invading aliens and invading monsters. They're never quite, quite as good. Still fun in their own way, but never quite as good. And this leads me to the top of my list. My favorite science fiction movie of all time. One of my favorite movies of any genre of all time. Forbidden Planet. Made by MGM Studios with a huge budget, all of their best talent went into making this movie. And it's Shakespeare in Outer Space. It's a retelling of Shakespeare's The Tempest. It involves a crew of Earth astronauts who venture to this distant planet, Altair IV, to rescue the members of an earlier party that had traveled to this planet and never responded back to Earth. Well, when, these, when this American space crew arrives on the planet, they find a very strange setup. There's only one survivor of the original mission, this elderly scientist, and his beautiful daughter. It has a very straight-laced young Leslie Nielsen playing the commander of the American astronauts. And if you've only seen Leslie Nielsen in the Naked Gun movies, or Police Squad, or Airplane, You might really get a kick out of seeing Leslie Nielsen playing a stone-cold, sober spaceship pilot. So those are the movies and the TV shows that stand out in my memory. Those are the ones that I used to watch every chance I got. Before I go, I'm going to leave you with a little teaser. People will often ask me for the names of my Star Trek episodes, so I figure, why not just get the names out there right now at the beginning of the podcast. If you want to watch them before you listen to any more installments, feel free. Here they are, in order of appearance. My first writing job for Star Trek was the one in which I did not get a screen title, and there's a reason for that that I'll get into in a future episode. But the episode is called Timescape, it premiered on June 12th, 1993. It was Season 6 of Star Trek's The Next Generation, Episode 25. My next episode was f- the first for Deep Space Nine. It was called Second Sight. It was Season 2, Episode 9. First aired November 21st, 1993. Then came Meridian, Season 3, Episode 8 on Deep Space Nine. Aired November 14th, 1994. For the Cause was the next episode. Deep Space Nine, Season 4, Episode 22. First aired May 6th, 1996. Finally, Who Mourns for Mourn? Season 6, Episode 12. First aired February 2nd, 1998. So that's my list of Star Trek episodes. Go out and enjoy, and I'll talk to you next week.